Good morning, Christ Church. Yes, my name is Paul Fowler. I serve as our Lake Forest campus pastor. So good to see all of you here today. Special welcome to those of you watching online as well as up in the 01. So we're continuing our Exodus series, but as Luke just said, we're going to be looking at Psalm 90. But before we get there, question for you. What is it that motivates you? What's that thing that gets you up out of bed in the morning? The thing that helps you take that extra time at work, helps you run faster, work harder. What is that thing that motivates you? Perhaps for some of you, it's a person. Maybe think about your loved ones, a spouse, someone that you are helping, someone you're supporting. For some of you, maybe it's your children. You want your kids to have a better life. You're working hard to provide to take care of them. Maybe that person is yourself. Maybe you do what you do because you have certain dreams and goals for where you want to be in your career at this point in your life or where you'd like to be in the future. Maybe it's school-related. Maybe you're studying for a certain degree. There's a certain job that you want to have in the future. For some of us, maybe it's a financial goal, a certain amount of money you want to have for retirement or what that retirement looks like. There's a certain amount of money you wish you had in savings, whatever it might be, a lifestyle, a trip, a dream, things. Maybe that motivation is your health. Maybe you want to make it to a certain age. Maybe it's a race that you're wanting to be a part of, if you like running and those type of things. Maybe for you, it's a certain weight goal. You want to be able to lift a certain weight or you want to be at a certain weight. What is that thing that motivates you to keep going? What's interesting about our motivations is whether we consciously admit them to ourselves or not, subconsciously, we're going to start moving ourselves towards those things. We start to reprioritize things in our life to help us get there. So as you think about maybe it's a health goal that you have for yourself, maybe you want to run a race or you want to be able to get to a certain weight, no one needs to say to you, don't eat ice cream for dinner every night. You're just not going to do it. You know that's not going to help you get to your goals. If it's a work goal, no one needs to tell you to work harder, to put in the extra time to get there. You're going to do those things to get there. If it's for your family, you're going to do whatever it takes to provide for them and take care of them. So what's interesting about our goals or motivations consciously or subconsciously as we work towards them is social scientists have kind of realized that if you kind of build this vision board, as they call these things, or if you kind of put this mantra in front of you, naturally it keeps it top of mind and you're going to keep working yourself towards there. This is what business coaches and life coaches will do. They'll come to you and say, what's your goal? Where does your business want to be? Where do you want to be professionally? And they're going to keep reminding you of those goals till you get tired of them and make them happen. But have you ever stepped back and said to yourself, am I pursuing the right things? Is what I'm motivated towards going to help me to be where I want to actually be in my life? In fact, in our Christian world, we could say to ourselves, are the things that I'm motivated by going to lead me closer to God or take me further away from him? What are your motivations? Where are you going towards? Is it taking where you want to be or further away from it? Well, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 90. And the reason that we're jumping out of Exodus is because Psalm 90 is actually a psalm that's written by Moses. And if you want to grab your pew Bible there, it's page 851. But what we left Moses last week is he was 40 years old. He got in a little bit of trouble uh, in Egypt and he had to run away. 
and he finds himself in the wilderness kind of pondering his life, pondering his existence. And so Psalm 90 kind of records what he wrote down, what he was thinking about. And I think it's helpful for us as we consider our motivations, where we see ourselves going in this life, and where we want to go. So before I start reading Psalm 90, verse 1, just a few things whenever you're studying the Bible, I will say is you always want to know what genre of literature that you're in. So for example, last week we were studying a narrative, and when you're studying narrative, what you're looking for is who's the characters? What's the dialogue? What's kind of the central conflict and theme? Because that's going to help you find application. When you're studying the Bible, you don't just want to pick a verse. You're looking for the context and how we understand what God is trying to tell us through the author who wrote it. If you're studying the epistles like we did this year, the summer with James, we're looking for the place that the author says, so that, or therefore, or do these things. But when you're studying the Psalms, it's actually very different because the author is going to use a lot of phrases, a lot of imagery, but you're looking for the repetition of it to try to understand what are they saying. And a good question we can ask ourselves is what is the author telling us about God? What is the author telling us about ourselves? So that's what we're going to look at today as we go through Psalm 90. Let's start in verse 1 together. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. So what is Moses wondering about here? What is he talking about? Well, as you study poetry in the Psalms, what is helpful is Hebrew poetry usually will kind of repeat things three times. And a great example of this is Psalm 90 verse 2. What you see is it says, before the mountains were born. So we're talking about creation there. The next line. Or before you brought forth the whole world. Also, we're talking about creation here. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From all, everything that happened in the beginning. So if this was me, I'm not a poet, I would just say God is everlasting. Or God is infinite. But the author is telling us in different ways that God is everlasting that God is eternal, that God is the creator of all things. Where does the psalmist go next? Look at verse 3. We see these quotes, return to dust, you mortals. So whenever you see quotes when you're studying the scripture, what you want to say is, who's saying that? Where does that come from somewhere else in the Bible? So if you have a good reference Bible in front of you, unfortunately the pew Bibles don't have that, but it costs a little extra, uh, you would know that this comes from Genesis 3.19, where after the fall of humanity... God says, in the curse to dust you shall return, which is somewhat fascinating if you've ever thought about that, because the reality is that all of us one day will become dust. Whether you're cremated or not, after you are buried in a coffin a hundred years later, you will turn dust. That is what we become. So how this ancient Near Eastern society figured that out outside of God, who has created us, telling us this is interesting. But you see, the word or the name Adam comes from the Hebrew word, which is for soil, which is for dirt. So God made us from dirt. He formed us in dirt, and we will one day return to that. Where does the psalmist go next? We see this kind of repetition of the poetry. 
A thousand years in their sight is like a day, verse 4. A day that has just gone by, like a watch in the night. I don't know what a watch in the night is like, but to get this three times in a row, we know that that must feel quick. might seem long to us, but for God, it goes by very quick. So how does that fit together in this? Well, I think what's helpful is look at the next verse where it says the word sweep. If you have the ESV version in front of you, you're going to get a little bit different translation of this verse. It's going to say sweep away in a flood because the Hebrew word there maybe would be better in our English to say swept. Swept away as in like a flood. So what's interesting there when I was studying this, I was like, oh, I think I see what Moses is doing here. Because if you look at verse two, this is actually what's talked about in creation in Genesis chapter one how God has created all things. If you look at verse three, it's talking about the fall of humanity. That's what happens in Genesis chapter three. In verse four, it says about a thousand years later in poetic language, because a thousand years after Adam dies, a thousand years after he becomes dust, we have the flood. So in this creative language, in this imagery, Moses is retelling the story of our creation, the story of our fall, the story Uh, The flood, for what purpose? Why does he want us to know this? Well, we find it in verse 5 and 6. We are like new grass of the morning. It springs up and it's withered at the end of the day. So in verse 1 through 6, using a lot more words than I would, Moses is saying two things. God is infinite and we are finite. God is infinite and we are finite. What do we do with that information? We got to keep reading. Let's look at verse 7. We are consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Okay, that's a little bit dark. Moses is sitting out there in the wilderness. He's come from the highest place of Egypt. He finds himself as a shepherd. Mike said this last week, it's not a job you go looking for. Most of us, I guess, are not motivated to be shepherds. But it's where Moses finds himself. And as he's sitting here, what is he pondering? Well, it says in verse 7, he's pondering God's anger. Why would he be thinking about God's anger? We don't like to think about God's anger. We don't like to talk about God's anger. That's the God of the Old Testament, which we find ourselves in. Why would he be thinking about these things? Maybe a better question is we should ask ourselves, why is God angry? Well, it says right there in verse 8, because of our iniquities, because of our secret sins. God is angry because of our sin. And he goes on, he's going to talk about how our days pass away, how our days may come to 70 or 80. Again, that's why we think Moses is perhaps writing this when he's in the wilderness. We know he's 80 when he sees the burning bush and he goes back into Egypt. But right now, what Moses is thinking about is God is infinite and we are finite. That God is angry. God is infinite and he is angry. And we are finite and we are sinful. In fact, the reason that God is angry is because we are sinful. The reason that we are finite is because we are sinful. So what are we supposed to do with this information? Let's look at verse 11 and 12. I think Moses actually gives us some good application here. 
If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. He's going to go back and he's going to start talking about God's anger again. The thing we don't like to talk about. And what comes next is he says, well, that we should give God the fear that is his due. Well, if you don't like talking about God's anger, most of us don't like talking about fearing God. And it's at this point that someone would say, all right, it's not really fear. It's just this reverence, this respect. That's really what it's saying, right? Which is somewhat true, but it's not completely the whole story. You see, there's a reason that you're holding a Bible in front of you that has been translated into English by Hebrew scholars that will look for the best word to put there so you would understand it. And you would think after we've come a few thousand years that we would say, we all know it's respect, just change the word, fear is confusing everybody. There's a reason that the authors, the translators, I would say, have left the word fear there. We'll get to that in a little bit, but I just want you to understand that we can't just quickly toss this off as reference. We have to understand God's anger and how fear, our fear of God, fits into this. Because what comes next is then he says, teach us to number our days. To think about that we are finite. To think about one day we will become dust. These are all things we don't like to think about. These are all things that probably are not what is motivating you, that gets you out of bed in the morning. Why is Moses thinking about these things? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit, but what comes next is quite shocking because we could stop here and say, let's just apply this. Let's work this through. How do we understand what to do? But we've got a few more verses that come here, 13 through 17. And what happens is in these next verses is so shocking that some of the biblical scholars say, I think this should be two Psalms. They must not go together. There must be a problem here. There was sad Moses and there was happy Moses, and let's switch this around. Let's look at what comes next in verse 13. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's the kind of psalm we're used to. That's the kind of story we like. God, show us your compassion. Show us your good deeds. Show us your favor. Establish the work of our hands. Why is Moses, for most of this psalm, saying that God is infinite and we are finite? That God is infinite, but he's also angry. That we are finite, but we're also sinful. The reason why God is angry, the reason why we are finite, why is this infinite angry God going to show compassion? What is happening here? How do we understand what Moses is realizing as he's sitting out there in the wilderness? And how does it help ourselves consider what do we do for our motivations? Where do we go next in our own lives? So before we leave today, just a few points in application of this. And the first one comes from verse 11, which I think is really the part that we play in this, the verses that we need to understand. It's wisdom or right living, and you see that word in verse 12, wisdom 
I'll explain this really quickly. It's the Hebrew word chokmah, which is actually skill for living. It's the right way to live in this world. So what's interesting there at the end of verse 12 is it says a heart of wisdom. You see, when we think about wisdom, we think about our mind. We think about how smart you are, how intelligent you are, that you can do all these great things. Wisdom in in biblical terms is much different. It is skill for living. It is living in the right way. It's understanding that God has a way of doing things, and how do we live in his way? So wisdom, right motivation, right living, skill for living. Wisdom, the first point, comes from knowing the power of God's anger. Wisdom comes from knowing the power of God's anger. As I mentioned earlier, people don't like to talk about God being angry. That's the God of the Old Testament. Let's just move forward. We like the New Testament. Let's go there. But why is God angry? Why is the God of the Old Testament seemingly so angry as people want to simply describe him? Well, let's do this. Let's say, for example, you get to create your whole own world. Not that you're God, but kind of like it, right? So, you got to make a place for whatever creatures and people that are going to live on this thing. Um, the two popular options today are a sphere or a flat circle. And even if you make it a sphere, the, there's people that are going to think it's a flat circle. And I don't recommend making it a flat circle because people are going to go to the edge of it, they're going to go off, and they're going to get really upset at you. So let's just agree, let's make it a sphere. Now you got to put some creatures on this planet. Plants, animals, um, I recommend no artichokes, no spiders, not in my world. Um, It's fine if you want that in yours. Uh, I would say, because I'm not a pet person, I I wouldn't really put cats on there, but then my daughter, my kids, my wife would be upset, so fine, there's cats. Um, I would also not really put dogs on there, but my small group would be upset, so yes, there's dogs. You can ask me about my pet ideas later, but so you got all these animals on here. Now you need some humanoids, right? Some people, are you going to make them look like you? Are you going to make them not look like you? Um, two hands, three arms, like how do you want to work this out? You know, they might want three arms because they want to do more work, but trust me, with two arms, they'll work themselves to death, so two is fine. But now let's say you filled up this planet, you made this whole place, it looks all great, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's really nice. You did a good job. And if you're really good and loving You're not God, but this is your world. You might want to give them a rule. So let's say, for example, you just make one rule. This might sound a lot like Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but no coincidence. Um, Let's say you make one rule that out of all the millions and billions of trees on the planet, there's just one tree. Like, just don't eat off that one tree. You can eat off all the trees that you want, just not this one. And let's say these creatures you made eat off that one tree. Are you going to be angry? See, we ask why God is angry, and then we kind of tease this out, and this is exactly what happens. They eat off that one tree. So let's say maybe you say, all right, you just need to get away from me a little bit. You ever been angry at someone? Just step back. Like, you're not going to destroy these creatures that you've made. And let's say they have a couple kids. This may or may not sound like Genesis 3 or 4, but they have kids. Their names, let's just call them Cain and Abel. And so one of them is really mad at the other. And so you go down there and you say, look, I think you're going to kill your brother, but just don't do it. 
It's murder. It's bad. It's awful. It's a body. It just, don't do it. But then you go back to, up to heaven, you give him this pep talk, and then he kills his brother. Would you not be angry? Let's say maybe a thousand years later, they keep having kids, the whole world is filled with people, and you look down, and let's say, maybe it's just a coincidence, that there is one guy that's only doing the right thing, one guy in his family, and let's just say his name is Noah. Do you see the story over and over again that we find in Genesis? God gives mercy. He gives guidance. He gives rules, but the people disobeyed it. God gives a plan, a hope, an opportunity, but the people disobey it. They reject him as king. They run far from him. They don't follow him. This is why we would say the God of the Old Testament is angry, because he is. Because there is a right and a wrong that's in this world, and so often people rather reject it and they want to do it his own way. That's why God is angry. Mentioned this before, we don't want to live with a God who can coexist with sin, because that means once we are in heaven that we get to a place where God doesn't care about this stuff. Ah, just let it go, it's fine. No, we don't want a God who can deal with sin and injustice. We want that to be dealt with. So what's our job? If wisdom comes from knowing the power of God's anger, what is our work in this? Well, it comes from the second part of verse 11. It comes from fearing God, giving him the fear that is due. Now, if we can understand why God is angry, now why is it using the word fear? Don't we just need to move beyond that? Because see, you come at one point where God comes up to people and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's the common thing. Angels will say this. Don't be afraid. And it's the same word that they are using as the word that is fear here. The same word throughout the Old Testament where it says, I'm afraid of the wolves. I'm afraid of thorns. is the same word they're using for fear of God. Why is fear the best word? What's so interesting is I think the reason why fear doesn't work for us is we are like Adam when we think of fear. In the garden after Adam sinned, what does he say? I was afraid and so I hid. You see, our thought of fear is to run away. Where When God talks about fear, he's saying, I want you to take that fear and knowledge of who I am and follow me. I want you to take that fear that is, there is right and wrong and that you do it the right way because I made this world for you. I made you and I gave you these rules for your good, not for your bad. We take fear and run from God instead of fearing God and running to him and running to the right way of doing things. How differently would you live if you were motivated by a proper understanding that God is angry because there is wrong and injustice in this world? Just watch the news. We can all be angry about everything that's happening. Just takes a couple minutes of that. But how do we be motivated to properly fear God and to follow him, not run from him? Wisdom comes from knowing the power of an angry God. The second point comes from verse 12. Wisdom, skill for living, right motivation, comes from numbering our days. Wisdom comes from numbering our days. Now, this is not something we like to talk about. We like to avoid the topic of death. We like to not think about it. Funerals, make them pass by quickly. Let's not think of it. But what Moses is saying is it's important to number our days. We are finite. We will not be here for forever on this earth. 
there is a Australian nurse that wrote a book in about 2017, and she talked about a few different things that people would say to her as they were in their last days or in their last moments. And a few of them were pretty common all throughout the people that she spoke with. As people came to their last moments, they would say, I wish I would have let myself be happy. I wish I would have not lived based on others' expectations of me, but for myself. She said, all the men said this, I wish I would have worked less. I wish I would have invested in relationships that were around me. You see, when we number our days, it helps us rightly reflect how we want to live. And whether any of those reasons might be true for you or not, what is true is that one day your time will come. And will you use that to think of what I wish I had done before, what I wish I had been about before? Moses is sitting in the wilderness, thinking he's going to make it to 70 or 80. He has no clue what God has in store for him. He's about to go another 40, 50 years and see incredible things that God has in store for him. As you number your days, if you thought about what God has in store for you, it helps us reprioritize. It helps us understand how to most spend our time. Have you ever stopped and thought about how many days you have left and how you will spend those? Wisdom, the right way to live, comes from numbering our days. The final point comes from verses 13 through 17. This kind of confusion of why it seems like there's two different psalms that take place here. It's compassion comes from an angry God. Compassion comes from an angry God. You see, it's confusing for us to understand that God is infinite and he is angry. That we are finite and we are sinful. And because we're sinful, we're finite. We return to dust. Because we're sinful, that God is angry. So why would the infinite angry God choose to have compassion on these finite sinful human beings? It says in verse 14, because of God's unfailing love. God is not just infinite and angry. He is also unfailing love. And so many times we get this wrong because we look at the God of the Old Testament. He's so angry. He's so upset. But then we see something happen in the New Testament. And God is about mercy and grace and forgiveness. What happens? Jesus Christ comes. You see, all the way from the beginning in Genesis, there was a plan that involved God saying, I'm going to pay the price for this. God doesn't just ignore sin and just let it go. Right and wrong matters to God. But he pours out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference for us. You see, now, even though we know that we are finite, it's through Jesus Christ, we know that we will live forever if we believe in him. Even though we know that God is angry, we know that we are, have peace with God through Jesus Christ who bore the wrath in our place. Even though we are sinful, we can have peace and freedom and forgiveness through Jesus Christ who gives it to us. God is infinite and angry, but he is love. We're finite, we're sinful, but there is hope for us, and it's found in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you could say, well, let's just avoid that God is angry. Let's not talk about fearing him. Let's just focus on God's compassion. Let's just focus on his love. Isn't that the important part? Well, 
yeah, but that's not the application that Moses is giving us here. You see, because I think if we lean into God's compassion, and I think there's people that teach this today in this world, you're going to come to a place where it cheapens God's grace. Eh, I know you've got to forgive me anyways, God. You see, we don't want to use God's compassion as a license to do whatever we want in this world, to make excuses. We don't want to use that God has died for us and given us freedom to now turn around and sin again. We don't want to say, well, I'm truly going to live forever, so I need to live it up here while I'm here on earth. You see, it's easy to cheapen God's grace and love when we assume it's required, not that it's given by God, not that Jesus willingly gave up his life because he loves you. I don't know what your motivations are in life. I don't know that thing that gets you out of bed in the morning that keeps you going. I'm assuming it's good, it's helpful. But my encouragement to you this week is to do what Moses did. To step back and say, is what I'm pursuing taking me where I want to be? Is what that's keeping me going at work or in life or with my health going to take me closer to God or further from him? In fact, I think a bigger question for us to ask ourselves is what Moses was thinking about here. Who is God? Who am I? And if God is infinite and angry and he is love, let us not use that as a license to do whatever we want, but may we turn around and be as Christ to others. Philippians 2 says if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, any motivation from being a Christian, do what? Put others first. Love others. Have compassion. If Jesus can do that for us, willingly gave everything for us, how do we use that as a motivation to in turn do that for others? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you chose to forgive us and take our place on the cross. God, we thank you that you are love. We thank you that there's a plan to deal with the injustice in this world. Forgive us that we are at times part of the problem. God, may we love and serve you well. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for guiding us and directing us in all ways. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.